Hello, welcome to Off Grid, where once again we've solved a cryptic crossword so that you, dear listener, do not have to. We, well that's me, Void. And me, Dave. And from this crossword, we've each picked one favourite clue that we will explain to you later, but we also picked a favourite word which will inform a little story or tale or fact that we think you might find interesting. Now, if you're not a solver, don't worry, because there's all that other stuff that's not about the crossword going on. But if you do particularly want to get ahead of the game by doing the crossword before listening, I'll tell you the one we tackled this time was The Guardian's Cryptic Number 28724 by Picaroon, which was published on Wednesday the 6th of April 2022. And as well as all of that, we will also have a short quiz courtesy of the ever-present, ever-wonderful General Knowledge. Are you there, General? I am here. Hi. Glad to be back. How are you? Hey, I'm doing all right. Very good, thank you. So, let's tell you our favourite clues then. Uh, we'll come back to them in a little bit and explain how they work. And like Dave said, if you're not a solver, don't worry. So, General, what was your favourite clue from the puzzle, please? So my favourite clue was 16 down. Armies swamped by anguish or despair. Six letters. And Dave? I picked one down, which said, Become leader in takeover. Retire first. And that's two words, four and four. How about you? I went for 22 across. Trains heading for Euston with fees to carry a pet. Eight letters. Right, we'll revisit those as we go along in the pod. But first of all, General, to quote Gil Scott Heron, what's the word? Well, the word today is cucumber, which is a word from 23 across. Um, Before I start rambling on about cucumbers, let's start with a snap poll of the podcast. How do we feel about cucumbers? Like them, love them, hate them, couldn't care less about them? I'd go slightly on the positive side i find they're at their best in a cream cheese bagel i i'm not a cucumber eater (laughs) okay well i think that makes us pretty representative um it may sound like a strange question but very recently yougov polled the nation on how we feel about cucumbers Uh, they found that 98 percent of the uk had heard of the cucumber well that's good to start with (laughs) yeah among these respondents 74 percent liked them 14% 14% were neutral and 10% disliked them, making them together the 18th most popular vegetable in the UK, according to YouGov, <laughs> just behind the orange pepper and the plum tomato. But what's weird about what I just said? Oh. So the strange Ooh. thing is that... If, is, is it these kind of taxonomic classifications as to yeah. what actually is a vegetable and what isn't? That's right. All the three vegetables, in inverted commas, that I mentioned are botanically classed as fruit. And actually, if you look at the YouGov top 20 list, over half of them are fruits, technically. So it's a bit of a silly poll, but I think it kind of epitomises the weird and wacky world of the cucumber uh, in the British imaginations. No one's quite sure what we think of it or what to do with it. So are you you yourself pro-cucumber? I am pro-cucumber, but I'm anti-cucumber sandwich. So sort of the inverse to you, Void. (laughs) But these cucumbers go all the way back to the 14th century when they first appeared on these shores. So I'll start all the way back then uh, with one of the fullest early modern accounts of the cucumber, which comes in John Gerard's Herbal in 1597, which is one of the really early botanical encyclopedia. 
Gerard tells us there be diverse sorts of cucumber, some greater, others lesser. And among the names he lists for the cucumber are cowcumber, earth apple, anguini, the pear fashion cucumber, which has clasping tendrils and slender footstalks, the Spanish cucumber, which is a rare and beautiful cucumber, the long cucumber, although I suppose all cucumbers are long nowadays, which is crookedly turned, and the regular old bog-standard cucumber, which creeps along the ground all about. Creep is the verb that often gets used to personify cucumbers in terms of how they grow. Oh, gosh. Well, they creep cats out. (laughs) Have you seen all the videos of cats being scared by cucumbers? I haven't seen that. I've seen babies being intimidated by lemons, and I suppose it's a similar (laughs) YouTube niche. Um, But the personification doesn't stop there because Gerard also indexes the virtues of the cucumber for us, which essentially means what can you do with the cucumber? He tells us it provoketh urine and it filleth the veins with naughty cold humours. Why do we think the cucumber might be particularly good at filling the veins with cold humours? Cold humours? Emphasis on cold. Is it because it's 80% water? It is to do with that. Cucumbers, or the inside or flesh of a cucumber, tends to be about 11 degrees Celsius colder than its surroundings, oh. which is actually where we get the phrase cool as a cucumber. Oh, very it's good. an idea of sort of sheltered interiority being hermetically sealed, cool, calm and collected. That idiom takes on a certain irony in Gulliver's Travels, where scientists fritter away time trying to harvest sunbeams and solar energy from cucumbers. Although Gerard curiously tells us that if you mash up a cucumber and paste yourself with it, it's a great cure for aftersun. Among the things it can do for you, it can also cure your saucy fleam and take away your lentils. Do we know what (laughs) saucy fleam and lentils are? Uh, How are you spelling saucy fleam? I'm probably mispronouncing it. I'm not up to date on my Chaucerian English, Um, but it's sauce as in ketchup and then F-L-E-M-E. Sauce fleam, saucy fleam, something like that. Cool. It's to do with your skin. It's a skin condition. Can we guess which one? Oh, sort of eczema and, and things like that. Yeah, it's in that world. It's essentially acne. It's an early modern, early modern word for acne, your saucy fleam, which to me is a brilliantly unappealing word. Um, yeah. It sort of <laughs> conjures up snot and phlegm and that class of things. Yeah, I was going to say it sounded like phlegm, the ending. Yeah. Mm. And your lentils are your freckles. It's an early modern word for the freckle. Oh, uh, lentigo, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. It gives us that kind of thing, which is also ironic, given that if you Google cucumber and lentil, there are thousands upon thousands of salads and curries that are based around putting them together rather than one scaring away the other. One of the last things that Gerard says really surprised me in terms of um, some kind of anachronism. He says, the seed of the cucumber stamped and made into milk, as they do with almonds, looseth the belly gently. This may be my ignorance, but I thought that almond milk was a modern phenomenon. It turns out they've been doing it for centuries and centuries. Uh, The metaphor of milking nuts and vegetables. In fact, the word lettuce shares a root, as it were, with lactate. In this sense, milk is something more like a secretion or a juice than the idea of it relating to dairy that we have nowadays. Okay. Of course, when you do make uh, almond milk or whatever these days, at least in Britain, you're not allowed to put the word milk on the carton because that's one of the uh, rules of uh, feed labelling. That uh, uh, quote milk unquote is the dairy stuff. 
Yeah, and I think there was one one brand that did an advertising campaign that was centred around, we're not allowed to call this milk, but you can if you want. <laughs> Quite right. There was a big uh, FDA lawsuit in the US around the same thing, and they ruled in favour of dairy companies having ownership of the word milk, even though, as we can see from this kind of thing, there's been a kind of a commons of the metaphor of milking for at least uh, five centuries or so. Mm. Not everyone was such a big fan of the cucumber though so in the spirit of 21a which gives us obit or obituary i looked into whether anyone had overdosed fatally on cucumber <laughs> and a surface of cucumber far too much cucumber or cowcumber as it turns out in samuel pepys's diary in 1663 he tells the story of a poor man called tom newburn who was dead of eating cowcumbers one of many anecdotes that Samuel Pepys had heard about the dangers of the cowcumber in early modern London. Tom Newburn might have been overdosing on ketchup, in fact, as some of the earliest iterations of ketchup came from the same time and were based around cucumbers and vinegar rather than tomato, which, of course, loops back nicely to 18 across in the grid, which is condiments. Oh. I had a vague idea that ketchup wasn't Asian word. Have I made that up? Am I wrong? You're quite right. It is an Asian word. I th- uh, I'm going to get the language wrong, but I think it was originally katsup, which was a kind of um, wonky transliteration of oh, okay. a word for a source, potentially from China, but I'm not sure about that. That sounds okay. plausible to me, yeah. Samuel Johnson of the dictionary had a rather dismissive recipe for cucumber and vinegar for us. He said in his 1755 dictionary, a cucumber should be well sliced and dressed with pepper and vinegar and then thrown out as good for nothing. More recently than that, Virginia Woolf shared in his disdain for the poor old cucumber. And when writing an essay about Margaret Cavendish, the poet, Woolf described her prose as if some giant cucumber had spread itself over all the roses and carnations in the garden and choked them to death. Which to me is quite a charming metaphor, even though it's uh, a little disparaging. Clearly not a fan. <laughs> no. Okay. I'll wrap up with a few rapid-fire cucumber facts from around the world, and you'll okay. have to excuse my um, pronunciation of some of these words. I'm sure I'm butchering it. But we'll start in the UK. W- what do we call it when you kick a ball through someone's legs in football? That's nutmegging. It is a nutmeg. But in Austria and Germany, it's known as a gurkel, which is a small cucumber, uh, a cousin of the gherkin that we know. Uh, if you get girl curled or I'll nutmegs, just, uh, s- pull away from football and switch over to cricket briefly because you know one should. There's a shot in cricket which has been called the draw, which is where the the batter plays the ball between their own legs behind them and away from the stumps deliberately. But that's been taken up by by the English cricketer Nat Siver. So it's been given the, the new nickname of the Natmeg. Oh, very That's good. Great. She's fond of playing it too. Mm-hmm. Well, if you get uh, natmegged as a bowler or nutmegged as a footballer, you might be said to be vergurken, which is the German verb to cucumber, which means to make a mistake. <laughs> and if getting vergurked wasn't embarrassing enough, you then joined the ranks of the gherkin troop. What do we think a gherkin troop is? Well, I was about to say, aren't they uh, Nepalese soldiers? <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> it's a troop of cucumbers, which is analogous to a bunch of losers. Ah. A bunch of losers, a gherkin yeah. troop. 
In English, we talk about a slow news day, but in Icelandic, they talk about a gurkatit, which is cucumber season, when not much is happening at all. But in the 1700s in London, cucumber season was the woozy downtime in summer. Uh, as the Pall Mall Gazette put it, when cucumbers are in, the gentry are out of town, meaning that summer correlated with when the aristocracy went on holiday. More recently, a few things to finish. In 1940s Connecticut, the test for assessing whether pickled cucumbers were fit for human consumption was dropping them from a height of one foot. What do you think was the response from the cucumber you were looking for? Do you want a bouncy cucumber or a cucumber that just stays put? I would think you want a non-bouncy cucumber. That would be my theory. Well, yeah, the fact that it's pickled, though, does that... Uh. Maybe that? Maybe I do agree with that. If it wasn't pickled, I'd think you would expect it to keep its watery centre, which would give it some bounciness. But if we're talking pickled, then, yeah, I'm going to agree. Non-bounciness is good. You do want a little bit of bounciness. Supposedly, if it stayed on the floor, that meant something had gone wrong and it was no longer edible. The man who invented the steam train, George Stevenson, also invented a cucumber straightener. In 1994, an auction house was offered Rasputin's severed penis, which turned out to be a dried sea cucumber. And last of all, what do we think a cucumber mosaic is? I pulled this one out of the dictionary because it seemed like a lovely phrase. Cucumber mosaic. I mean, if you were to make a mosaic out of cucumbers, you might be making out out of slices, so they're all circular. So, therefore, is it one that doesn't tessellate very well? (laughs) Not a bad guess. Grabbed at straws. (laughs) (laughs) It's a nice idea. It's actually a kind of virus that attacks cucumbers and mottles the skin of the fruit. So Um, it's a very unnaturally delightful. Uh, name for a virus that actually just kills the cucumber the cucumber mosaic and that's uh, just there, about all i found is, on the cucumber cool i was just gonna say is there there's a not as disease but a, a strain of corn corn on the cob where instead of having all yellow corns they're various different colors and i'm wondering if that's called a a mosaic strain or a mosaic breed but i might be making that up might edit this bit out and just let you finish on where you finish. Odd, odd. <laughs> sure. Maybe I'll look it up first and decide mm. later. In the meantime, should we come back to my uh, choice of clue out of the out of the puzzle? Yeah. If you recall, it was become leader in takeover, retire first, four four. I liked this one because the definition part was very easily missed or skipped over. It was just the first word become. Then leader in take is the letter T, over is the letter O, and retire, not as in retire from employment, but as in retire to bed for the night, is turn in. But it does say retire first, so you have to put the turn in before the T and the O, which makes turn in two, which is become. I thought that was rather neat. Very nice. Yeah. Void, what did you find to inspire a mental ramble here? I picked the word oddball from the clue to 12 across mm-hmm. because I used to work in a juggling shop called Oddballs. So I thought I'd tell you a little juggling story, especially since today is the first day of the British Juggling Convention, which I'm not at for the first time since 1999 because COVID is not over. <sighs> anyway, 
So a long time ago, I was sat talking to my friend Charlie at a juggling convention, and we were watching our friend Monty practicing a trick. It's a good trick, isn't it? Said Charlie. I said, yeah. How, how hard do you think it is? Well, it's complicated, but I think it's gettable. And I said, shall we try it? So we got up to have a go and to talk to Monty about the trick and to get some tips from it. It's the type of trick that jugglers call a combination trick. Namely, more than one thing is going on at the same time. Right. And from the point of view of the audience, it looks impressive. And I stress that because quite often the difficulty of a juggling trick doesn't necessarily correlate to how impressive it looks to the audience. Mm-hmm. So you probably want to know what Monty's trick was. Well, I'll, I'll put a video of it up on the blog, but it combines elements of ball spinning and balance and what most listeners will probably think of as normal juggling. Charlie and I, we already knew how to do all the individual components of this trick, but the question was, would we be able to combine them successfully? The first problem with this trick is not having enough hands to hold all the props to start with. So what you have to do is to take your three juggling clubs, stick them between your legs and grip them there, just as a placeholder, as it were. With one of your other hands, you then spin a ball up on... One of your other hands? How many hands have you got? Yeah, well, this is the problem. With one hand, <laughs> <Not enough. laughs> you spin a ball onto the tip of your finger. You then transfer this ball, while it's still spinning, onto the tip of a six-foot-long pole, which you're holding in your other hand. So the ball is now spinning on the tip of the pole. Mm-hmm. You then lift the pole up into the air and balance it on your chin or your forehead. The ball is still spinning on the top of the pole. Yes. You then reach down, grab the three clubs, and start juggling them. Right. Whilst maintaining the balance with the ball still spinning on the top. Mm-hmm. You juggle the clubs for, ideally, long enough to get a round of applause. <laughs> you then catch all the clubs, grab the pole with one hand, because you're holding the three clubs in the other, and as the ball bounces down, you catch it in the crook of your arm or in in the crown of the three clubs if you're really flashy. And you then smile. <laughs> in, in relief. In relief and hope of applause. So Charlie and I started learning this trick. And for me, it was a while before I could say, yes, I have done that trick but i'd say it was about six months before i could say i can do that trick yeah yeah there's there's the difference between being able to do a thing and being able to say you confidently won't not do the thing yeah so it's not just six months it was a year before i felt confident enough to actually perform the trick Mm. so basically that's a year's work to learn one new trick and that's on top of all the years of experience we already had. 
you know, with our existing juggling skills. So if you presumably on the way to that, there's an added danger of dropping the stick in addition to the clubs that you've got. You're adding a new component that can fall straight on your head. Yes, absolutely. There is a club juggling video by my friend Haggis McLeod, where he teaches how to balance a club on your chin and then juggle. And his mantra is, don't drop the balance. That's Mm. the most important thing. Keep the balance. So, uh, yeah, if you see a juggler doing a trick, take a second or two to think, how hard is that really? And then maybe consider giving them a round of applause. I don't know. Up to you. (laughs) Monty's trick actually became so popular at one juggling convention that it jokingly became known as the entrance exam because so many people started doing it. Um, And it was years later before Monty told us, oh, no, it's not my trick. I I got it from John. So I'd like to say hello to John and Monty and Charlie and all the other balls uppers and odd balls out there. And I hope to see you soon. Very good. That's my juggling tale for today. I had one thing to add on the theme of um, oddballs. One of the Mm. other words in the grid is Franco. Uh, And I thought that maybe the direction you take us in is that General Franco was famous for only having one testicle. An oddball. As as was Hitler according to the sun. Yeah, Famous song, yes. Lovely. (laughs) Charming. General, you want to tell us about your clue again? Yes, so my clue was uh, 16 down. Armies swamped by anguish or despair. Six letters. Uh, It's a very clean clue and a topical one for obvious reasons. But the solution is well disguised and it took me quite a long time to twig it. It was rather appropriate, I thought, to have a penny drop moment like this, given the theme of the puzzle. Ah. Now, the word we're looking for is a six-letter word for armies that is swamped by anguish or despair. And sure enough, straddling the words anguish or despair is the word hordes, a six-letter word for armies, spelled with the H from anguish, the OR, and then the D-E-S at the beginning of despair. I like this clue because it's very difficult to make hidden words look inconspicuous or to construct neat looking surfaces around them i don't think i've seen swamped as an indicator for a hidden before and using a word like or which is obviously a very common part of speech is an elegant way to camouflage the solution so that's why i picked it yeah Yeah. i didn't spot it for a while and i think there's a rule of thumb that says if you can't work out what the parsing of a clue is it's a hidden (laughs) always you touched on the theme of the puzzle there dave Got anything to say on that? Yeah, well, it was the theme of the puzzle that I decided to uh, to look into. So, as has been mentioned, there were a lot of coins. In fact, all of the across answers had words for coins embedded in them, either the official names or just kind of informal terms for some coins. So, for example, as as well as the ones that have been mentioned, you've got there was mention of condiments, which of course has got dime in it. Uh, another answer was ordinary, which has got dinar in it and so on. So I thought I'd have a bit of a dive into coinage. Do you guys know what is the smallest denomination of coin as a fraction of the pound sterling that we have ever had? I don't off Ooh. the top of my head. Would it be, or would it have been, one nine hundred and sixtieth of a pound? Namely, a farthing. 
it, I'll it's... go one nine hundred and sixty one. Just to one <laughs> on the grounds of I'm going to be nearer. Quite uh, right. You you are right that it is a fraction of a farthing. It is smaller than a farthing. Was it then a groat? No, a groat is larger. A groat oh. is fourpence. What it actually is is the quarter farthing. And given that the etymology of farthing, I, you can probably guess, is is a fourthing, so it's a it is itself a quarter of a penny. Yeah, this makes the quarter farthing one sixteenth of a penny, and this was produced and circulated in Ceylon in the mid nineteenth century, so not all that long ago. But it didn't state that it was specifically for the territory, so it is considered proper British currency. There was also a third farthing, so a twelfth of a penny, which was produced in and for Malta. And then one step up from that, the half farthing, which was also produced in Ceylon, but that did come back and it was it was definitely legal tender here in Britain. So that was also mid-19th century. All right. Um, it's just pressing buttons on the calculator there. So the fourth farthing would be one 3,840th of a pound in old money. Marvellous. See what you can get for one of those. <laughs> the farthing itself continued to be minted right up until 1956. It was eventually withdrawn from circulation at the start of 1961. So that's um, 10 years before decimalizations. Except in the Falklands, which we mentioned in the previous... No, it wasn't. It was the British Antarctic Territory we mentioned in the previous episode. Both there and the Falklands, the farthing survived until 1970. I don't know if either of you have ever called someone a daft apeth. Not recently. Is, is it yeah. a phrase you've used? Guilty, yeah. Guilty, yeah. Well, that, that is short for a half pennyworth. So it's one of those words, few words that standard spelling has got two apostrophes in it. H-A apostrophe P apostrophe O-R-T-H. Anyway, I was sort of stepping up through the, through the denominations. <laughs> I was... Hoping to find out about the etymology of penny because you kind of go, that's your basic basic unit, the one we've still got. Um, mm. It's obviously related to the German pfennig. Uh, there's also a Dutch penning, and I looked that one up, and the first thing we get straight away is the murky waters of that dreaded phrase, origin obscure, origin unknown. Mm. Origin, okay. I know <laughs> they all they all certainly go back to old Germanic languages, you know, old Frisian and Saxon and Danish and things. But it's a bit hard to see where the ultimate source is. It was the same story with the cucumber. Yeah, origin unknown. Potentially the uh, the umber bit of cucumber meant shadow to do with the inside being colder. Mm. But that was yeah. as far as I got. Yeah, you get these things where they say it is conjectured that, and you kind of go, yeah. oh, "Well, we could all conjecture." I mean, there's a the, the Q part re- referring to snooker. Cause yeah, because it's, it's long and thin, shaped like yeah, a Q. Yeah, clearly, absolutely. Clearly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there, there is a theory or a possibility that the penny is related to pan, in the sense of a round, flat shape. Oh, okay. You mentioned the groat. That is fourpence comes from the Dutch Groot, spelt with two O's, as in I am Groot, which means great because it was a thicker, bigger coin than the penny. Ah. And that's also the same origin for the old German and Austrian coin, the Groschen. Yeah, I think of Groot as being older than penny. It just oh, well, it, it, feels like a medieval, a more medieval-y word, and penny it's... feels newer. 
It's just because it's it dropped out of usage earlier than all, than all the others. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose so. In regards to Germanic coins, obviously in German, it's a little sort of etymological uh, lineage here. Tal, T-A-L, means a valley. I think you can probably guess where I'm going with this one, perhaps. Anyway, it's it's a word that gets obviously used in toponymic place names. Uh, this valley, that one place where it was used was Joachimsthal, which was the old German name for what is now Yachimov in the Czech Republic, named after Saint Joachim, the father of Mary. Yes, that Mary. Joachimsthal is an area rich in silver, so there was silver mining there for centuries. And where there's silver mines, there's going to be coins minted. So coins minted at Joachimsthal were known as Joachimsthalers. Thalers, yeah. Which is a bit of a mouthful, so they shorten it to Thalers, and you see where we're going. It's a large and popular coin of the Holy Roman Empire and the Habsburg monarchy, so it spreads across and other coins in other countries get named after it. Goes across to Dutch. The spelling changes from a T to a D and becomes Dala. And yeah, that's where we get the dollar from. Yeah, I read that one in a book I mentioned a few episodes ago. Actually, the invention of nature about Alexander von Humboldt, because uh, they had Dalas in his neck of the woods. Yeah, so a dollar is really a coin from the valley. There were Speaking s- of things from the valley, do we know where mint comes from? As a verb for coin? Oh. I don't off the top no. of my head. It may have oh. sounded like I oh. do. From <laughs> oh, the, oh, oh. I was, a genuine <laughs> earnest question. Right. Let's have a look. Origin. Old English. Minette. Coin. Of West Germanic origin. Related to Dutch munt and German munza. From Latin moneta. Money. The money, adjective moneta. derives <laughs> from an elliptical use of in mint condition. So mint and money are are related to each other. Yeah. Some of the other coins we had in the in the grid, there was the Louis, fairly obviously a pre-revolutionary French coin, which was introduced by King Louis the Thirteenth. Not to be confused with the Looney, which wasn't in this puzzle. But uh, do you know about the Looney? That is that's a Canadian coin, is it? It's a slang for the Canadian dollar. Yeah. yeah. Do you know why? I have heard why, but I can't remember now. Is it to do with the bird, the loon? Yeah. Yes, the common loon is a is a, a aquatic bird, and it's on the reverse of uh, the most common design of the coin. Yeah. I think we had dinar in the puzzle, which uh, is the same derivation as the Roman denarius, which was originally denarius numus, the valley. Uh, sorry, the value of ten asses. <laughs> so you you could buy ten asses with a denarius. So it 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 means of ten, right? As opposed to the dime, which is the opposite. It's one tenth. It comes from French dim d i s m e and ultimately Latin decimus one tenth part. And don't the abbreviation l s and d in pre decimal British currency that's librum solidus and denarius, isn't it? Absolutely, derives yep. from those. Yep, absolutely. One of the other coins in the grid was the sou, as in a small French coin, which was a variant of the older sol, which itself came from the solidus. 
interestingly, at the kind of early time of use of the solidus, we've got in the 6th century, the Gothic language, there were some people who were bilingual with Gothic and Latin, and their equivalent to the solidus was called the Skillix, which is S-K-I-L-L-I-G-G-S. You can trace that all the way back down through all the Germanic languages, and you end up with the shilling. Yeah. Yeah. There's the ducket, named after a famous Cardassian leader. No, hang on a minute. No, that's not right. Gul Ducat, sorry. Terrible Star Trek joke. It's from the Italian Ducato, a coin struck with the image of a duke, because the first one was issued by the wonderfully named Roger II of Sicily, who was mm-hmm. Duke of Apulia. Anyway, that's all I've got on coinage. Anyway, Void, what about your uh, your clue? What did you have? Uh, my favourite clue was trains heading for Euston with fees to carry pet. I liked it because it had a convincing surface story about uh, railway companies screwing every last penny out of their customer, <laughs> which I'm sure we can all relate to. And yet the answer had nothing to do with the railways. The definition was trains, the first word, and the wordplay was heading for Euston. So that was the head of the word Euston, in other words, the letter E, with fees, and the fees were dues, pay your dues, pay your fees, to carry pet, meaning carried inside of the dues, was a type of pet, a cat. And you put all that together and you get educates for a definition of trains, but not in the choo-choo sense. Quiz time it is. So the first question of my quiz was inspired by 4A, sound of baby bird or seal. So the bit that struck uh, stood out to me there was sound of baby bird. So I'm going to read you four Japanese onomatopoeia for birds, and it's up to you to tell me which of these is not a bird on a matapia. I'm aware I may be playing into the hands of one of the hosts of this podcast, but I think they're sufficiently obscure that it should be a fair contest. So, A, gya on, which is G-Y-A-O-O-O-N, and you can have an indeterminate number of O's to lengthen that sound. Okay. B is ho, ho, which is H-O-U as many times as you want. C is Kokekoko, which is K-O-K-E-K-O-K-K-O. And D is ka, 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 which is just K-A, as many times as you want. So three of those are birds. One of them is something else. Now you get a point if you can tell me which is the odd one out. And if you can tell me what that is an onomatopoeia for, you get a second point. Well, the the one with K's in it. Kokekoko. Yeah. That feels like the cockerel, doesn't it? Exactly. I was playing a very silly game, which I can't remember the name of, which involved lots of people making various animal noises. And the first time I played this game was uh, with a bunch of people from different countries. And when the German girl had to make the noise of a cockerel, she said, a kikariki. And that reminded me, well, it sounded a bit like that one. So I'm going to go along with Dave and say that's a cockerel. That one is a cockerel. You've eliminated one of the birds. I would two say, birds left. I would say that the, the cat, cat at the end is probably a bird as well. 
Sounds Corvidic, doesn't it? It does, yes. You're exactly right. Kaka is for the crow. Well, there we so go. So you've now got 50-50. Gya on and ho, ho. Ho, ho. The... I want that to be maybe an owl and for the first one to be the odd one out. So it does on the grounds that we've, we've got to... We've got to plump and 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 have different options, perhaps, or something. That's where I'm plumping. That the, the second one is is something like an owl, and it's the first one that's the odd one out. Yeah, I was thinking possibly pigeon for that sound. Mm-hmm. Well, you both got it right. It is a bird, but Dave, you are ultimately correct. It's the owl. Ho oh. ho is the sound of an owl. Okay, so I'll give you a point each for that. Bonus point if you can tell me what gya on is the onomatopoeia for. And I'll give you a hint, because onomatopoeia is a very broad category. This is a, a living being. Is it, is it a mammal? For reasons which will become clear, <laughs> that is uh, indeterminate, I think. Indeterminate. I, would, I dare say it's not a mammal. Oh, Are we harking back to our episode on cryptids here? Is it a, a mythical Ooh, creature? I, it is a mythical creature. It's not a cryptid because I think within the myth, people are not in doubt about its realness. Oh, famous hey, what, Japanese. Oh, okay. So would it be a very <laughs> tall, city-destroying creature? It is. It's the tall it, green it, fellow. It's yeah. it's a it's a kaiju. Yeah. So the reason I said it's not a cryptid is I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, cryptid refers to something people aren't sure whether it's real or not. Whereas within the world of Godzilla, he's pretty conspicuous, I think. Oh, right. So you were saying <laughs> that with, within the myth, he's definitely sure. real. But in reality, he's yeah, definitely a myth. So. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Confused me slightly, but yeah, I see what you mean now. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, yes, questions... and, he's, and he's definitely not a mammal. Yes, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Would we say reptile? Godzilla? I think so, sure. yes. Okay, yes. good. Okay, we're staying on animals for questions two or two and three, but we're going to US animals, inspired by the reference to US animals in the clue for Bobcat. So, first question. How many dogs do you think there are in the United States that are on anti-anxiety medication? <laughs> now, I'll take your initial guesses and then I'll give you the total number of dogs and then you can revise it as you see fit. Of the total number of all dogs in the States. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe we should try and have a stab at the total number of dogs first and then work downwards. So the US population, 350 million-ish. Now, let's say, divide that by four for families. Let's say 90 million families, roughly. How many families have a dog? Uh, let's say... 40%. Let's say 35 million dogs in the USA. That's my starting guess. Um, and then how many of them are on anxiety medication? Still feels like a million is far too high. Hmm. I'll go for 200,000. Okay. Dave? I, I was thinking that maybe upwards towards a million. So I, I'm going to say a million just for the sake of having a nice round number. Okay, I'll tell you that the total number of dogs as per the 2021 American Pet Products Association survey is 69 million. Does that change your answer, or are you still pretty happy? 
Uh, well, that's about double what I guessed, isn't it? So I'll, I'll double my answer to 400,000. <laughs> I'll stick with a million. Okay, the answer is 10.4 million. Yikes. <laughs> I know. 15% of all dogs in the US are on anti-anxiety medication, according to that survey. So 15% of 69 million gives you roughly 10.5 million, which is uh, pretty <sighs> wild, I thought. That's just crazy. Question three. So this was uh, inspired by John O'Groats, which was one of the solutions in the grids. Mm -hmm. um, John O'Groats obviously is an extremity um, of the UK. Now, which US state is closest to Africa? Ah, this feels like there's going to be some sneakiness going on in here. It's going to be something like there's an island which is officially part of Africa. We're, we're on the mainland, mainland United States. Oh, mainland United States. And if you can't remember okay. the eastern seaboard, you can tell me bottom, middle, middle bottom, whatever you want. Well, well I guess... The, the... I, I, there's, there's a cheaty answer, which is that uh, national embassies are technically the land, of the, the property of the, of the country they're in, and therefore the answer will be Washington. But I guess that's probably not what you're looking for. I suppose Florida is the furthest south on the eastern seaboard and probably about level with some part of North Africa. Is that the closest? It feels like too easy uh, an answer to pluck out. But that's all I've got. You're, you're quite right. You've identified that there's probably some mischief going on here. Um, Shenanigans. Shen shenanigans but geographically accurate shenanigans importantly um the closest state to africa is the one right at the top of the eastern seaboard which is maine so even though that's more or less canada because of the curvature of the earth it is the closest to africa by some margin ah because if you say due south from it it's a closer distance than if you were sailing due east from florida mm. Neat. Uh, and the co corollary fact from that is that if you're standing at the top of alaska the closest capital city to you is in Reykjavik because you go right. off the top <laughs> rather than round. Hmm. Site of the world's most northerly cricket ground. Cool. <laughs> or international cricket ground. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody, that's about it for this time. Our webpage is at offgrid.tlmb.net and that's where you'll find links to the puzzle and to all the stuff we've talked about today. And also to our Twitter profiles, should you wish to contact us. Mine being at Skirwingle. And I'm at the void TLMB. You can also check out my blog if you like, tlmb.net slash blog, where I post crosswords and also post videos explaining how the quiz work. You might find that helpful for general cryptic solving. Oh, speaking of generals, general, what have you got to recommend for us? I can recommend following at RoddyHJ on Twitter and checking out Quince in The Independent and on MyCrossword.com. I can also recommend the article Beastly Clues in the Public Domain Review, which is about more cryptids and made-up animals in 1930s cryptic crosswords. I read that one. That's a good read. Ah, I'll go and seek it out. Thank you very much for helping us again, General Knowledge. No problem. See you all next time, folks. Goodbye. Ta -ra. Bye. That was Off Grid. Thanks for listening. Thanks Picaroon for our puzzle. Thanks the Trudy for our theme sheen. Thanks to all of you who've left us a review. 
and thanks to everyone who has left us a rating do leave us a review it really really helps thanks see you next time bye bye these are all all fascinating stuff <laughs>